0: This is Esculapius, a podcast that uncovers the human side of our healthcare professionals. I'm your host, John Neary. Today, my guest is Noah Masika. Noah is a strategy and analytics consultant with High Point Solutions, a life science and healthcare consulting firm. He received his master's in chemistry from the University of Maryland and is an incoming MBA candidate at Harvard Business School. Noah, welcome to the show. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. So first, uh, to get a better sense of the work you do at uh, High Point Solutions, can you describe the the clients you work with and the services you aim to provide? Um,
1: Yeah, so we mostly work with uh, a broad range of life sciences companies, but more recently I've been working with uh, small biotech firms, mostly pre-launch, or maybe they have their first product out. I've worked with a couple of larger pharma clients, but uh, the bulk of them have been pre-launch can, uh, clients um, and what we focus on at least in my practice is is somewhat supporting their sales operations from an analytic standpoint so if you were to think about it uh, as you go as the company goes through drug development they've done a lot of market research so they understand uh, how they're going to position a drug um, they understand who they're going to be competing against how they define their market and then they purchase data from actually IQVIA, which is the same company I work for. Um, And so at that point, that's when we begin to engage. So we, as a analytics and in some ways data science person, we we help them in the process of cleaning that data, um, defining their market, uh, understanding the key players. Uh, They will work with other clients for understanding the market and segmentation of of key HCPs, uh, healthcare professionals or key healthcare organizations. then they feed that into their overall uh, strategic goals for which either channels they want to uh, go through in terms of sales or um, which uh, HCOs or HCPs they want to focus on or who they want to target. Um, and so we'll advise them throughout this whole process. Uh, and then the final product usually is a reporting tool on the business intelligence side that they can use for their sales operations and their commercial analytics uh monetary
0: cool so clarify one thing about the lingo uh you said biotech and pharma does does one of those kind of envelop the other or is are biotech and pharma kind of synonymous uh
1: so i guess for me i look at it as biotech is uh biologics versus pharma would be small molecule although you do have you do have some pharma companies especially the much larger ones would have in their portfolio both small molecule and biologics but you know when I, when I speak to it, bio, biotech would be biologics and pharma would be small molecule.
0: Could you expand? What's that distinction there between biologics and small molecule?
1: Um, small so molecule, you could think about it as uh, it's made in the lab uh, a chemical compound versus biologics. It's grown uh, through a biological okay. process. So also the, the size of the molecules would be very different. The, the biologic molecules are mostly larger
0: in general, can you just describe the the landscape of the, the pharmaceutical industry, right? I imagine, like you said, you have like, you know, big players, you have probably have some small firms, then you have, you know, research institutions and, you know, more industry focused uh, organizations. Can you kind of give a better uh, picture of, of that dynamic and how they sort of all play their their role in the market?
1: Yeah, um, I think, you know, that's kind of a broad question, which I'm not sure if I would be fully qualified to answer, but I can speak to it from the way I view it is you, it depends on the portfolio that you're playing. So some of these larger pharma companies, uh, you know, your Bayers, Novartis, Pfizer, um, they've got pretty large portfolios in, in a lot of different therapies that they offer. And they're always shifting um, in terms of what, and it's ca- kind of driven by reimbursement as well, but they're always shifting their portfolios to, to match the market needs and to maximize profit. And then you've got your small uh, biotech firms um, who are maybe either getting into the market or they, most, they just got into the market. So if you look at their drug pipeline, maybe they have one drug approval um, for maybe one indication and they're pushing for a second uh, indication. Um, and sometimes you might look into their pipeline and they have a couple more drugs in, in their pipeline that they're hoping to launch. Um, and then there's the in-between the small companies and the large companies, but I haven't worked with a whole lot of those. So I'd, I'd look at it that way, either pre-launch, uh, mid-size, with, with some, somewhat of a mature uh, maturing pipeline, and then the large uh, pharma companies.
0: Gotcha. And then beyond that, though, how do you kind of academic, you know, research institutions coexist with those players? Um, I think they, they – one
1: come into play during the development phase drug development phase um i think there's a lot of uh, sort of they work together during during that phase for maybe research purposes uh in the clinical development phase and then i think post development we will see uh Sometimes in the data where you are, your pharma companies are targeting these research institutions because uh, you might have the right patient population that is treated at those areas. So, for example, you could have a, um, a research institution that's focused on, on a specific type of uh, cancer, and this pharma company either works with them during the clinical phase, um, during various clinical phases or post, and they're targeting them as a potential customer for their drug
0: gotcha i'd imagine too like funding would come into play i know um like like some research projects at least where i work are are industry funded Mm -hmm. so um i guess that that relationship can kind of be um yeah Yeah. on the dollar side as well yeah and
1: it it could be pre-commercial phase right um so they worked with them during phase one two three or post so sometimes um some researcher might be or at the same time who's a physician might uh, be using that drug off-label and they're seeing uh, some good results. And through that, they can initiate some investigative studies, which could lead to more indications for that drug. So you'll find pharma companies are very interested in that as well and will support those investigators or those physicians uh, during that process.
0: Yeah, I guess that's pretty relevant now with the uh, discussions of hydroxychloroquine. Correct. Um... We'll we'll get back to, to COVID maybe uh, a little bit, but you you said phase one, two, and three. Can you talk about kind of like the process of of developing those drugs and um, sort of the the stages of trials uh, that companies need to go to to get them to market? Yeah. Um,
1: so, it it partly so at the end of the day, the things that they focus on is uh, safety and efficacy, right? So safety is. Uh, they're doing the toxicology studies and the efficacy is how um, any medical benefit that you're getting from using that drug. So in the, typically in the first uh, phase, they're more focused on safety. In phase two, you'll be having a smaller uh, population that you, you look at the uh, efficacy. And then phase three, you you'd have a much larger population that you look at the efficacy. And then you put that all together, take it to the FDA hopefully get approval
0: you were also talking about um you know company companies like like pfizer or whatever trying to develop their portfolios can you um i have a specific uh story of mine just recently Mm -hmm. that occurred in work we were talking about um you know how how uh drugs are developed for for certain conditions right and so i work uh in a setting where um we're doing uh, radiology studies for, for orthopedic conditions. And, you know, osteoarthritis is kind of the big player. Um, and unfortunately there's not a lot of pharmacological interventions because um, someone was saying it's, you know, quote unquote, not, not really a sexy disease, right? Nobody, um, while it, it, it impairs function and ultimately, you know, can lead to, uh, you know, mortality. If, if, uh, if the, the disease progresses, it's not sort of, this, um, you know, heavy hitter like cancer right. or, or other conditions that are uh, really, you know, really have kind of like the wow factor of, of, of drugs can bring life-saving interventions. Yeah. Um, so to get back to the original question of, you know, how do companies develop their portfolios of drugs and how much does this sort of wow factor play into them choosing uh, what drugs they choose to develop? Yeah, I
1: think, um, you know, in, in my opinion, the incentives are aligned based off of how they can maxim- maximize their profit, right? Um, so they, so rarely would you uh, go through the trouble of developing a drug if you're not going to make a profit. Um, and long-term, it's not only that one drug, but you want to have a pipeline. So sometimes they might be looking at either a, a platform that they can use to have a couple of different indications or or something of the sort. And so in that case, um, I think when they're they're doing the initial market research, that's the thing they really want to understand. Um, They're also looking at reimbursement rates. um, Because at the end of the day, the thing that's interesting about pharma is, or yeah, pharma in general is the user of the product isn't the payer of the product, right? So you might have a great drug, but you also have to focus on the reimbursements. So you really have to be interested in how the different payers are going to play. And a uh, key player actually is uh, the government. So uh, Medicare and Medicaid, how that how that covers that drug will typically also uh, influence how all the other uh, commercial payers do cover. So that's another thing that you focus on just beyond, oh, there's a, there's a large enough patient population, but how will be covered and what kind of reimbursement you would get really drives whether or not you want to proceed with drug development.
0: In terms of uh, current events, Mm -hmm. right. With, 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 with COVID-19. Have you seen just a massive shift of resources towards uh, that development within a company's, you know, drug portfolios, just because that's where, you know, I guess like you're saying that there'd be opportunity for reimbursement and, it's really just, uh, you know, a hot yeah, topic. I
1: mean, not particularly, I would say what we've seen, um, is some clients are interested in seeing how, uh, the landscape as it is right now and the environment is impacting their sales and impacting their forecasts over the next couple quarters. Right. Um, because people aren't really going to hospitals anymore because it's not safe, but people aren't traveling as much, and, and how that's gonna affect uh, their sales. Um, but beyond that, I think uh, pharma companies who are focused on a certain indication or uh, a certain group of therapies, I think they, they're just going about their business the same. And I'm working with a couple of clients right now, and I don't, beyond trying to get a sense of how that impacts their bottom line over the next couple quarters I don't think they're too interested in it
0: in terms of uh you know you you get these drugs Mm -hmm. to market right um and you you want to use them in a clinical Mm -hmm. setting so can you discuss the the communication and information channels that exist between you know pharmaceutical clients and clinicians like since there's so many drugs on the market right how do you how can uh, you know what what things are put in place so that clinicians can use uh, the right drug at the right
1: time? Yeah, um, so there's a couple drivers. I guess I I could speak to it from a from a pharma company's perspective, right? At the end of the day, if I have a drug in the market, I want the doctor to prescribe my drug first, right? And so it. Partly from a initial market research and results of the different clinical trials, um, and the approval that uh, that you get from FDA, it it sort of defines how I can market the drug, right? And and typically you can think about it either you're differentiating yourself in terms of um, safety or efficacy, or you're if you're what they call a me-too drug, where it, you you don't really have good safety or efficacy data that that is significantly better than the competitors. And so you're competing on price. In that case, you're, you're trying to offer better deals, but still trying to make a profit. Right. So with that, when it comes to how you communicate with um, physicians and how you influence um, prescribing habits, uh, we pharma companies will have a couple of different field teams. So they'll have a medical field team, and uh, they'll have a commercial field team they also they also have a reimbursement field team and a clinical field team but I'll just focus on the first two. so the medical field team will typically have discussions with um, physicians more on less on the promotional side so they don't really talk about dra- drugs but they'll they'll talk more about the mechanism and uh, they're really trying to develop these uh, key opinion leaders and and people who uh, who are interested in their drug more and you know trying to drive that sort of interest in writing journals or papers or doing more research around their drug. Cause in some ways that's still good marketing. And then at the same time, you'll have your commercial field teams who are your traditional uh, sales reps who are actually going to uh, uh, the doctor's office and they, they have uh, some pre-approved documentation and pre-approved um, literature that they're allowed to share. And they can have discussions around that. Um, they might also influence uh, prescribing habits through, um sampling um giving samples of their drugs so it just really depends but mostly you'll see either the medical or the sales teams going out
0: i guess tangent to that right uh marketing is also done to the consumer you know there's plenty of ads on on television (laughs) and in other media for 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 drugs and is that is that you know are most of the resources put towards marketing to clinicians because I guess that seems so probably a better target, but I guess okay. yeah, yeah, go ahead. it's
1: interesting. So I just wanted to clarify, I know you're talking about the ads that you see on TV. Uh, what's interesting, my understanding of it, it's not considered an ad as much as disease state awareness. Um, and it, it's just a fancy way of saying, we're not asking you to buy as much as that's why at the end of the day, they say, um, talk to your physician about this, right. Versus your traditional ad would just be, uh, oh, hey, we have a product and it costs this much, right? So, so they, yeah, because they're not right. exactly allowed to advertise, but they are allowed to uh, uh, create awareness around a drug or around a disease. Um, but the, on the physician side, what's really interesting is uh, depending on on what type of physician you're seeing, right, whether they're in a group practice, whether they're part of uh, an integrated uh, delivery network, so if you could think about a Kaiser Permanente or something like that, um, what they how they prescribe is defined by this document called a formulary. And typically, uh, what it says, and in, in, when you fill out your uh, insurance forms every year, you get these explanation of benefits. And basically, what it outlines is if you have if you are going through a certain therapy, what's the first line. Um, drug that you get? What's a second-line drug? What's a third-line drug? And what I'm trying to get at is it's almost predefined. And so, although the commercial reps knocking on physicians' doors does, in some ways, influence, what really matters is where your drug is positioned in in that formulary.
0: And that's only... But you're saying that's only relevant, really, for large, larger healthcare systems where they kind of have this, I guess, standard of care, uh, so, you know...
1: Of, yes, of but also on the insurance side, all payers have a formulary as well. So whether you have Aetna or CVS or whoever whoever is your insurance, whoever is an insurer, they have a formulary. And very similarly, it does outline what's covered and what's not covered and how much it's covered, right? So once again, your doctor um, <laughs> or the admin would have to figure that out um, and, and look through and, and Because at the end of the day, your physician just wants to give you the best uh, quality uh, care, but at the same time, they want to minimize cost. So they're also going to be very focused on the formulary. So you'll find that for a pharma company, they have teams that are dedicated towards these large uh, networks or these IDNs or these large uh, healthcare systems, as well as all these insurers. Just to focus on on trying to make sure their drugs are well positioned in the formulary
0: in some ways though, does that seem like an impediment to sort of you know a custom care plan that you're sort of going up this ladder of different options based on what um, insurance companies have worked out is that is that something that kind of uh, there's there's been some kickback from clinicians? Um,
1: not really I, I think partly it's just the way the system is designed right and and for you to to get preferential um, positioning on it, you, you know, you still have to show that you provide a better benefit than uh, the competitors. Right. So, so in some ways, I think the system, the way it designed it does work. I do agree that it, it is kind of uh, convoluted in a sense.
0: I wanted to actually touch on the broader uh, discussion of, of sort of big pharma and like the, the criticism it gets and the, the political Arena, could you kind of, um, you know, obviously there are, are a lot of politicians who, who uh, sort of criticize the pharmaceutical industry for sort of, um, especially compared to other countries that U.S. drug prices are higher. Could you kind of discuss, um, sort of both sides of the coin there, why they might be right and why that? That's
1: yeah, I mean, this is something that it's it's always a funny discussion every now and then, you know. I'll, I'll be at a dinner somewhere, and uh, I'll say I work in in the pharmaceutical industry, and you know someone will <laughs> obviously bring that up. Um,
0: <laughs>
1: you know, I I do agree that uh, drugs are more expensive. I mean, people have done research, uh, in you know they compare with other countries, and yes, they they are right. But I think there's a lot of things that feed into it, and it's not as simple as just asking a pharma company to charge less right um yeah so i was doing some digging around and a couple of things that came up that were kind of interesting is uh for example if you look at the average med student um, for you to get a medical degree and practice the cost in the u.s is a lot is significantly higher than the cost in a lot of other countries right um when you look at the u.s being a very litigious society as well that means um, physicians have to insure themselves at a much higher rate than, than other countries. Um, I think also in a lot of ways, if you look at the U.S. industry, um, a lot of uh, new drugs and, and cutting edge science, it's really coming out of the U.S. as well. So you could also think that the U.S. is in some ways subsidizing a lot of uh technology around the world um so there's just a lot of different sort of factors i think that play into why it costs so much um but then there's also a lot of admin as well right um in in some of these single-payer systems where um you don't have to navigate five different pairs and um trying to figure out you have to hire like much higher admin costs for you to to get reimbursed for uh for a certain service that you gave, I think that also prices into the overall cost. And and that's why I think it's a lot harder for them to fix it than just asking pharma companies to lower their prices.
0: Right. Well, I mean, we also discussed that the arguably the biggest factor in them developing their portfolios is, is profit, right? Is there going to be opportunity for reimbursement? So Mm -hmm. Is that, is that problematic at all, that we, we kind of want to view healthcare as sort of this non-profit uh, entity, That's it, but then the pharmaceutical uh, industry is kind of, um, you know, it, it is kind of basing a lot of its operations on that profit?
1: I think that's true. I mean, it has to be a sustainable business for it to work, right? Right. Um, it's just, I guess the question is, how much profit is enough profit, right? Right. Um, <laughs> And, and i you know that argument's always interesting because if i was if i was a pharma um, executive i'd also be thinking about my pipeline long term especially if you're a publicly traded firm and um you want to make more profits so you can reinvest it into the business so you can have more uh drugs coming out of your pipeline right and get an approval um but i think yeah the incentives do align in such a way that uh they have to price it a little higher than they should. Um, but I think at the same time, it's the government's job to to sort of regulate that, right? And I, and I think that's that's right that they they do bring that up, and I'm glad that they're focused on trying to regulate it. So I think every, every player is just playing their role.
0: Right. Can you – well, I guess tangent to that, can you kind of just talk about the relationship – we, we talked about the, the you know, the, the channel between the pharmaceutical industry and, and clinicians. Can you talk about the, just sort of the relationship between the pharmaceutical industry and the insurance companies? Uh, uh,
1: well, yeah, it's interesting because it's a, the pharma company makes the drug, it's a manufacturer, um, markets to both the insurer and the physician, marketing to the physician so that the physician can prescribe, but then marketing to the payer so that the payer can uh, reimburse, right? So they, they have a pretty uh, strong relationship in that sense. And, and pharma companies really do focus on on developing those relationships um, so that they can at least make sure they get preferential formulary placement.
0: I guess on the, the flip side of the coin, can you just talk about... You know, we sort of touched on, I guess, the the, the the flack that the pharmaceutical industry gets, but being a part of, of this, you know, greater, greater, uh, you know, part of industry, can you can you explain how it's, um, the role, like, how you feel about the role of being in the healing part of that, you know, that, that pharmaceutical interventions, you know, have really played a big role in healing in our, our, our yeah, country? Yeah.
1: I do agree, and, and that's usually my, my like basic argument. The product we do provide, I, I'd be hard-pressed to find some other industry that provides a product that's better than ours, right? Um, and, and going just quickly on a side tangent, um, when it comes to drug pricing, I think it's only going to get more interesting, right? Um, if you look at uh, his new cell and gene therapies, I think Novartis has a drug that uh, I think the sticker price was – two million dollars for a single therapy but it's actually a cure right and so it's, it's rare like there's very few drugs that are cures and so if you really think about it like how do you price a cure right and and the way insurance is set up right now where you you renew your insurance every year um how do you make sure that uh, that is covered right uh and what's interesting is so far the, the drugs that the indications that they've gotten, it's a fairly small population, so it's like really orphan drugs with um uh, really low uh prevalence within the US. But, you know, if they if a gene therapy comes out for um maybe one of these blood cancers or something on that sort and there's companies that are working towards that that's really going to change how it's going to have to change how payers work it's going to have to change how people view what is expensive anymore because we're now talking a million dollar drugs right but they're all secured at the same time so i'm, I'm interested to see what's going to happen and as as that progresses
0: but specifically you though right like do you feel in in your work as as Exult in the pharmaceutical industry like how how do you feel that you're playing, like, a, a greater role in, like, the healing of, of people? Um,
1: I think – so let's step back. I started off as a, as a chemist, right? And, and then I felt that I was just doing cool science, right? But I wanted to swim up a little um, and, and really get closer to the patient. But I wasn't really thinking of going down the physician route. So then I um, sort of got into this consultant role. Which has been pretty good and it's very eye opening but it's also very far removed from care right at the end of the day I'm looking at patients as prescriptions or units sold right so I never really get to feel that I'm cre- i never I'm not close enough to the value that we're overall creating right um, but as I, as I think about what my career what I would like my career to be and what trajectory I'm looking at I'm thinking of getting closer to that Um oh, And I think that would bring a lot more joy to me. So right now, the answer is I I feel I'm a little too far removed from it than I would like to be.
0: Interesting. So how are you kind of pivoting? What what role are you getting uh, to be a little less removed?
1: Um, So I still like um, the data aspect. So I've been looking at it from a um, sort of function and scale slash scope. So from a function, like what am I going to be doing within the industry? And, and I really like, yeah. uh, I, I, I tend to really like the strategy piece. Um, so I want to do something that's around that. Um, when it comes to scope, I don't want to really focus on just one indication. So, or, or really one company uh, with, with a couple of therapies. I'd love to work with multiple companies so that would almost lean towards consulting, but at the same time, Um, If I got into maybe venture capital um, in the biotech space, I think that would be pretty exciting because I could work with a lot of different clients. I'd be much closer to the strategy. Um, I'd be working for the early, uh, early phase companies in that sense too. And, and I think they're much closer to uh, their patients and they really understand that well. So I think I would be pretty happy if I make it to that spot.
0: So, um, that sort of lead me to like a, a larger question, right, of mm-hmm. the, the, the the idea of pharmacy, right? We're kind of trying to impose a scientific model on the human body and develop solutions in that context. So mm-hmm. is there s- sort of space for this human or, or spiritual side in that? Or is that just inherently sort of, um, is, is, is pharmacy kind of inherently devoid of that? That, that human side of medicine and, and healing.
1: But the human side, could you, could you elaborate just briefly?
0: Sure. Yeah. I, I guess i my point is that, um, right. Phar- pharmacy, we're de- developing s- scientific solutions to, to either, you know, cure right. or mitigate suffering mm-hmm. caused by conditions. Um, and, and in that kind of very rigorous scientific framework, is it, mm-hmm. does it leave little space for sort of, um, I don't know what other way to put it, this a human or spiritual sense of, of that is also a big part of, of, of healthcare and healing. Uh, I see.
1: Um, I think, I, you know, and I've spent about a year or two years in Asia, um, uh, in the last couple of years. Right. And it's been pretty exciting and it's a different approach to it. Right. Um, uh, maybe cupping or acupuncture, like a lot more Eastern, uh, style medicine. I, I think there's room for both, right? Um, and I think just beyond even Pharma itself and, and us creating drugs uh, for cures or uh, to mitigate symptoms, also you're you're seeing exercise coming into play. You're seeing uh, nutrition coming into play and alongside what you described as well. So I think a more holistic approach to to healthcare and wellness, which is which is counter. Uh, to the way we currently approach uh, healthcare, right? I wait to get sick and then go to the doctor, right? Um, I think that's gonna be, that's really the way that we should be moving. And in some senses, you maybe in, in smaller groupings or subcultures, some people are very focused on that as well. Um, but yeah, I do think there is space for that, but there's also space for nutrition, there's also space for exercise. Um,
0: Yeah, I definitely, um, I hope we head more in that direction. Yeah, I think just because I think, think, well, yeah, even on the reimbursement side and insurance companies, I think they're starting to embrace sort of this more uh, preventative, uh, you know, approach in terms of in the long run, that'll be cost saving for them anyway.
1: Yeah, yeah, they're definitely doing that. And I think you're seeing that, especially in the mental health space, right? That was something that it's a lot harder to. Uh, I think at the end of the day what what really matters is can you prove it on paper with some numbers right and and I think we've had enough time to do some research and and people are starting to really buy into these ideas but initially it was kind of a hard sell right so you're right I think we're moving there maybe slower than we need to but uh, yeah
0: the last thing I wanted to touch on that I just find pretty fascinating that's I guess a big part of the pharmaceutical industry is the placebo effect, right? Is that uh, kind of considered, you know, a, a, a pharmaceutical company's worst nightmare that you know your placebo <laughs> rates are at thirty or thirty-five percent, you know, and then your your drug is at like thirty-seven percent, and you know, maybe maybe distinguishable from the placebo, maybe not. And can you just talk about the role that plays in the the industry as a whole uh, no, in terms like of validating that- drugs?
1: Oh, like randomized control testing. And yeah, I mean, you're right. If, <laughs> cause if, if you can't show significant clinical benefit, right. You are either likely not to get approval to market that drug, or even if you do, the data doesn't really allow you to position yourself well within the market. Right. So all of a sudden you can't really differentiate yourself. <laughs> and, uh, And now you're going on price, and that's not a great place to be. Uh, But yeah, the the placebo effect is—it's real. I mean, I I think uh, it's not necessarily uh, the placebo discussion, but if you look at uh, the COVID situation, and I think it's rem remdesivir i don't know how to pronounce it well but i think it's remdesivir
0: (laughs) yeah (laughs) i'm pretty sure that's the most mispronounced uh word in the u.s in 2020
1: (laughs) yeah their their results were i think they were reducing uh hospitalization time by four days right which in some senses is, is it's great right for a throughput perspective right if you're if you're seeing X number of patients and you can get them out faster, you can treat more. So I think that's sort of the angle they're going to, in my opinion, but generally it it, it wasn't very significant, right? It wasn't, it's not a cure. It's not like um, it, it, if if they had like five days or something, it would be pretty great, right? So so even for pharma companies, uh, sometimes the results that come out aren't that great, right? Or And even if they're not, you do just try to figure out how, you're still benefiting the system because at the end of the day, you have to figure out how to market your drug because you did spend a lot of money during your, your drug development clinical trial phase. So I think that's probably the play, the angle they're going to go with and maybe a couple others. But um, yeah, they, they always find, uh, they, they have to find a way to, to justify the costs that they get market.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think another argument I've heard regarding sort of the placebo effect is is that you know if if you give someone a placebo and and you tell them it's a placebo and it works, is that sort of medicine, right? And <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you're right. I I I think I think it is, right? If you sort of have a relief from whatever symptoms or um sort of condition you're experiencing, that is like medicine, even though there might not be sort of uh, you know, rigorous clinical trial to prove it um and it's not you know it's not going to harm you or 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 really help you scientifically anyway um i I guess that's i think it's still kind of medicine but it's it's definitely you know a little spicy for sure yeah
1: it's fascinating i think i I remember once reading about um placebo surgeries right where they go in and oh yeah uh, yeah and you know but the thing about it is it, it And I'm still sort of developing my thoughts around this, but we're each human being is very different. Right. And that's why like genetics is such a key play. And since um, you're seeing all of this, like push or trend towards precision medicine, right. Like really understanding the genetic code. But when you think about how clinical trials are run, it's a random set of people um, that's designed to say, if I can show clinical benefit within the sample population, then it should work in general. But we're very different. Each person's very different, right? So so even a drug yeah. that's approved might not work. So in some ways, like if you think about the placebo as well, like maybe he was getting he or she was going to get cured anyway right it's just <laughs> their body was working through it right so, so what i'm trying to get at is I, I don't think pharma is as accurate as it wants to be it's statistically acceptable but it's not a very precise uh, it's not 100 percent precise yet we're not in that precision phase
0: <laughs> p p values less than 0.05 0. <laughs> 0. <laughs> right
1: Yes. Yeah. Uh,
0: but but I'm, I'm, I'm very curious about
1: like, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm i hopeful with precision medicine someday that that could be, I think we're a long way to go there, but yeah.
0: All right. Well, uh, let's finish up with a lightning round, a series of fast paced questions that tell us more about you. Oh, no. So first I actually have a pop quiz. <laughs> um, Wait, so before this, so you, you work for, you said, it's High Point Solutions, but it, it's an IQ. Could you explain that? Like the, uh, so I, the name there?
1: Yeah. So I, um, I was hired at High Point Solutions, which is a, a consulting firm in 2017 and they got acquired by some company, uh, IMS, which then merged with another company, uh, Quintiles and they're now, they became Quintiles IMS and now they're IQvia. So now I work for IQvia and, um, I keep it is a pretty big data company uh they have a lot of market data for the u s and across the world and then that merger with Quintiles, is what that brought was uh c r o uh clinical research organization so basically, if you're a pharma company you want to run a clinical uh, trial they have the machinery to do it for you so then the two of them came together and uh they're now we're now a fifty thousand person it's just Behemoth company.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, my question was related to the name High Point Solutions. So the pop quiz was: What college football stadium was named High Point Solutions Stadium from two thousand eleven to two thousand nineteen? Ah, uh, is that Rutgers? That's right. Yes. Nice. <laughs> but they're not. They're not related, though. But yeah. <laughs> oh, that. So that's not related. No. to the, Your high. Point I remember Solutions.
1: asking. Yeah, I remember asking. But yeah, Rutgers. Wow,
0: this is, com- this is confusing. <laughs> it is, it is.
1: <laughs> um, but are you a sports fan at all? I am a huge uh, Eagles fan.
0: Oh, yeah? yeah. Philadelphia Eagles? Philadelphia Eagles all the way. Go Birds, Philly special. <laughs> what about you? <laughs> uh, well, I follow Michigan football okay. um, and Michigan basketball, but also the Eagles a little bit. My family's from Philly. Oh, okay. Uh, my brother's a e- bigger Eagles fan than I am. Oh, there, okay, so. good. Um, you've done internships in Allegan, Michigan and Wickliffe, Ohio, is that right? Yes, that is correct. Was it So I take it you know a, a thing or two about the Midwest. I, What's your, your biggest <laughs> biggest takeaway of, about living in the boonies? Oh, you know, so
1: I as a foreign national, right, my first experience of the US was actually in the boonies, right? Which when I think about it from a um, like getting introduced to American culture was was amazing. Like it's, it's very family oriented, it's very friendly. Everyone said hi to you. I mean, once I moved into the big city, I mean, I moved to DC and you know, it's just very different, right? I, sure, I, yeah. I had this sort of like American country uh, vibe uh, moving into the big city. So <laughs> that was kind of cool, but I loved it. I loved it a lot.
0: Uh, what's a good piece of advice you've received
1: so when I was thinking about, um, school, um, and really people are going back to school for an MBA and people are asking me about why you want to do it and, and what your career goals should be. Um, someone told me, think about it from a, uh, function industry and location right if you can kind of figure those three out it's pretty great so what function what and so we'll start with industry what industry do you want to work in so in my case it was still pharma and that was pretty good um what function or role do you want to do in that area and as I said um being in the analytic space I think that's okay but as I'm moving more I would love to get into sort of venture cap maybe and um that and then in terms of location that's very important from a family perspective um both uh your extended family as well as the family that you're trying to have with your partner as you grow up. Right. So, and thinking about your kids as well. So I would say definitely, as you think about your career, uh, function industry and location.
0: I'll definitely, uh, think about that a little more Yeah, that's advice. All right. Last thing. So what is the the thing you like the most? And what is the thing you dislike the most about the pharmaceutical industry?
1: Uh, I, I think the, the like part's pretty easy. Um, I think we create a great product. Um, And I think we just the, the benefit that we provide is great. But what I dislike is the way that the incentives are set up, especially um, um, from a reimbursement perspective and just overall cost. Right. Um, And I know there's also like, discussions on how delivery differs between the U S and other places, but just from a cost perspective, um, I think it's, it's fairly prohibitive um, and it would be great if we could try to figure that out. I I'm kind of leaning towards the healthcare should be a right, but I, but I know it's uh it's a little bit of a touchy subject usually because someone's got to pay for it somehow. Right. So, but it would be great if healthcare was a right. So that's one thing I do dislike about the way the industry is set up
0: certainly uh more discussion on all those topics uh <laughs> coming up so <laughs> no Masika, thanks for joining the show thank you thanks for having me that concludes this episode of esculapius till next time i'm your host john neary be well